Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. So Pastor Judah, Pastor Nick, and myself leave tomorrow to visit our brothers scattered throughout Romania and Albania. Hallelujah. During our absence, this team that is standing before you will be covering Acts 12 and 13. Those meetings will be filled with the same rich revelation and sound instruction that you've come become accustomed to receive. Oh, yeah. Before we get into our teaching tonight on Acts 11, I would like to read to you a passage from Hebrews. This is Hebrews 13, and I'm beginning in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I think that it's important to point out to you that the things that we discussed last week in the text are still ongoing in our lives. Amen. It's easy to fall into the quagmire of always learning, but never actually doing. Mm. If we've learned anything from the book of Acts, it should be that the deeds are our primary witness. In yeah. yeah. teachings, we're meant to follow that witness. Last week, a dear brother and pastor from a Baptist congregation spent several days with this community. He then attended our session on Acts 10. The irony and the timing of that teaching and the pastor's own background make it really difficult to miss Adonai's hand at work in the organization and timing of our session. Yeah. Of course, we didn't know that a Baptist pastor would be here when we laid out the order of the teachings and the chapters. But God did. Come on, Lord. Immediately following last week's teaching, that Baptist pastor experienced the baptism in the Holy Ghost. With yeah. May Adam and I be forever praised. Yeah. Nothing about our teaching was aimed at him or the theological framework that a seminary taught him. There were two witnesses organized by the Spirit of God. The first was that he saw this community living out the deeds of Jesus Christ. The second witness was that he saw the word of God held in high regard as the only true standard in our lives. These two witnesses provoked a hunger within him, and he went home empowered in new ways. I want to encourage all of you that the Lord moves through a twofold witness. This always leads to mental steps forward in the kingdom. The steps are most effective when done through teams that are full of sacrificial love and accountability to each other as well as the call of God on their lives. The Lord loves to tear down man-made taboos that have hindered the advancement of the kingdom. Jesus did it that way in the past. He does it that way among us presently. And Jesus will continue to work the same way into the future. The things that you're studying in the book of Acts, well, they are the normative experience of Christians in every century and in every location on the globe. Amen. If we seek to imitate them in our deeds and then in our teachings, they will continue through us into the future. Much in the same way that all of recorded history shows them being done in every century since the one that we're reading about right now. So let's get into our review. You will remember that a prophecy regarding the sons of Noah has been being displayed in the progression of chapters within Acts. So let's look at how Shem's tent 
is forming with all three brothers coming in in the book of Acts. We see Ham coming into the tent in Acts 8. Verse 27 says, On his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace. This is an ethnic Hamite coming into the tent. In Acts 9, we see a Shemite coming into the tent. In verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Shaul, Shaul, why do you persecute me? This is a Shemite coming in. And we see a Japhethite in Acts 10 coming into the tent in verse 1. Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. This kind of continuity in the scripture is evidence of supernatural design, as well as integration throughout every book of the Bible. Adonai loves his creation and desires to reconcile all mankind to himself within the tent of Shem that is Messiah's body. The walls that Satan has erected through the actions of sinful men, well, they feel very real. They often exist between believers with the same prevalence that they do in unbelievers. The Bible records the systematic destruction of the devil's work Amen. with regards to malicious indifference and open hostilities. Amen. One of the ways that Luke prepared us for the monumental event at Cornelius' house was by emphasizing a centurion early in the gospel prior to leading us to discover the faith of Cornelius. Yeah. You guys might remember this next slide. Two centurions. Yeah. Yeah. Let me direct your attention to the left side of the screen for a moment. You remember the first, the preliminary centurion that Luke described in Luke chapter 7. He had concern for a servant. He reached out to Jews for help. He was highly regarded by Jews. He was charitable towards Israel. He did not feel worthy to have Jesus under his roof. And he was a man of great faith. You guys see how the Luke 7 centurion prepared us for the events of Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. Those same attributes right there were seen in Acts chapter 10 last week. This kind of foreshadowing by Luke is an encouragement to expect supernatural things that are far outside of your man-made parameters and limitations. Yeah. A centurion showing great faith or being baptized in the Spirit was as shocking to the original audience as it would be to you if a Muslim imam had a transformative experience with Jesus and came to genuine faith. Wow. Yeah, wow. Acts 9 displayed the most unlikely of Jewish oppressors being transformed into one of the most prolific proponents of the gospel in recorded history. Acts 10 last week just displayed a soldier of Rome being transformed along with all of his friends and all of his family for the glory of God. Amen. The book of Acts is showing us a progression, one that goes into every previously divided segment of society and into the world. This should cause us to expand our expectations yeah. and inspire us to daring action and faith in Jesus' ability to change men. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like he did with Peter. You may remember that Peter's own life displayed initial resistance to every new development in Adonai's plan. Yep. This was true in his life, and it is true in all Christians throughout church history. Sure. Let's review the three times that Peter effectively said no 
do something the Lord wanted to do. Peter said no, but now he knows. So in Matthew 16, Peter effectively said no to the redemptive plan of the cross, but at this point he knows that the blood shed there represents the guilt and also the atonement for all men. He not only did say no, he rebuked Jesus. In John 13, Peter effectively said no to Jesus' plan to wash him with the other disciples. But at this point, he knows that the work of Jesus is to cleanse all men. Yeah, Amen. In Acts 10, Peter effectively said no to Adonai's ability to make unclean things clean. But at this point, he knows that Adonai makes formerly impure things become pure through faith in Messiah. Amen. So, why did Peter say no in these three areas? He did it for the same reason that you tend to say no initially. Yeah. The proposed step doesn't fit your ideas about what should happen. That's true, isn't it? Yes. yes. So, this reveals that you have a genuine Lordship problem. Yes. Yeah. You call him Lord, but only obey when it fits what you think should be done. <laughs> Every believer would like to be free of these carnal and unbelieving areas, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes! The major problem is that we don't even know that they are there yep. or are a problem. Peter is a towering spiritual giant because he's continually being sanctified. Amen. Yeah. He may have been initially disobedient, but as God's chosen instrument, he was always ultimately obedient. Yeah. Yeah. Each of us should pray for this kind of sanctification in our own lives. We should examine our faith and practice to find the self-righteous barriers that we have allowed Satan to erect in our own mm. lives that are a hindrance to the gospel rather than a witness of the gospel. Come on, wow. Amen. Amen. Yeah. That's good. So you probably remember that Peter thought he was doing right. He believed he was just practicing purity by avoiding what his culture considered to be unclean. Oh my. The voice from heaven redefined Peter's understanding of scripture and his own practice. You probably remember this slide regarding what Peter was told to do. It's our slide on the Greek word diakrinominos. Sixteen of our eighteen favorite lexicons indicated that this word has to do with discrimination. Peter is being told to make no distinction between them and himself. And look at this note from the ESV Study Bible. Or accompanying them, making no distinction. As believers, we all claim to hold to the scripture alone. Yeah. But the reality is that we are often influenced by what is socially acceptable within Christian circles far more than our observation of what wow. the text actually says. Wow. These barriers are difficult to tear down because they all feel like good practices. Yeah. One of the things we hope you are beginning to grasp is that it is never a good practice to add to God's word. It, is, it always results in calling something unclean that Adonai views as clean. Simply put, you are not the arbitrator of what is right or wrong. The scripture itself is the only true standard. Your own evil inclination has the ability to deceive you into believing that your socially acceptable, acceptable but totally unscriptural preferences are a witness. But they are not. However, when these barriers come down, the resulting repentance <coughs> in you is a tremendous witness. Amen. 
Well, since we can see that some of this is going over many of your heads, we're going to review a slide and then hammer that about 19 more times. So not unlawful, just taboo. Peter, in verse 28, striking what seems to be a stern note, advises the assembled group that it was taboo for a Jew to associate with or visit a foreigner. That is, if he or she wished to remain a clean Jew in good standing. The word here could be translated unlawful, but it probably has its weaker sense of taboo or strongly frowned upon. There was no formal law that strictly forbade Jews from associating with Gentiles. It was just that they had to be prepared to pay a price for doing so. The price being becoming ritually unclean. The texts written by Roman authors such as Juvenal and Tacitus show that Jews did regularly refuse to associate with Gentiles and were objects of suspicion because of their antisocial behavior. The Jewish community of the first century viewed it as socially taboo to go into homes of Gentiles. This was especially true if they ate in the home of a Gentile. The scripture does not teach this and never has taught this. Nevertheless, the sentiment was pervasive. Is that really so different from today's list of pet preferences in Christian circles? This ministry has been strongly criticized from within and from without for ignoring non-scriptural preferences. If we serve wine at a wedding, the critic says that Christians shouldn't do that. Never mind the fact that Jesus did that very thing. The same could be said about hundreds of other pet preferences that relate to food, drink, clothing, or the location of a Bible study. The point is that when we elevate a pet preference above the word, we are erecting satanic barriers that will be used to divide men. The process of sanctification, and hear me, maturing or the solution to this problem. Come on! That was true in the book of Acts, and it is still true to this very day. The book of Acts is the record of all that Jesus did and taught through his body on earth after the ascension. For men to act as the body of Christ, they have to be full of the word of God and the spirit of Jesus Christ. His spirit will co-witness what the word actually teaches and lead men to destroy the devil's work. You may remember that this can be seen in the three times that the phrase, the spirit said, occurs in the book of Acts. We put it on a slide. Maybe not so creatively titled, The Spirit Said. (laughs) Acts 8, 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. That was in the interaction with an Ethiopian Jew. In Acts 10, 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, without making a distinction. For I have sent them. That was in reference to God-fearing Gentiles. In Acts 13, 2, says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. As missionaries into the Gentile world is what we're talking about. And In other words, all Gentiles. So the victorious spirit of Jesus Christ will never violate the word of God. But he will often kick down your own man-made barriers. 
The book of Acts records the expansion of the kingship of Messiah into new areas and new peoples that the entire believing community would have considered off limits. Adonai has a plan to bring the sons of Noah into the tent of Shem. They're all brothers, and Adonai loves them all. His plan is centered on Shem, but never excluded Ham and Japheth. Praise God. Salvation is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. By the time we get to Acts 15, we'll be discussing how each brother can keep their own identity while coming into the plan that is centered on the tent of Shem that is Messiah's body. These issues involve the pet preferences of all three groupings of brothers. Oh my. As always, it is the word and not your mere human preference that brings about Adonai's will in their lives. You may remember how complete Peter's witness was among the Gentile believers. Even without the aid of preparation or foreknowledge of what the discussion would entail, Peter shares about the Godhead and the body of Messiah working in unity as one. Check out this slide. Peter starts by saying in 34, then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, bringing to mind the Father. In verse 36, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, the Son, who is Lord of all. In 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And in 39, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. In our minds, this is reminiscent of John 17, where Jesus prays that we would be one with him as he is with the Father. Acts is displaying an expanding and unified kingdom that is reintegrating the lost sons of Noah. Amen. If you guys remember from last week, we were a tad's hurry toward the end of our session. Frankly, this slide that we're about to put up was way too good not to review. Peter displayed a sevenfold witness to the facts surrounding Jesus as Messiah. Number one of the sevenfold witness of Peter, we saw everything that he did. This spoke to the fact of his ministry. Number two, they killed him. This speaks to the fact of his crucifixion. Number three, God raised him. This speaks to the fact of three days in the tomb. Number four, we were chosen to see him risen. This speaks to the fact of his resurrection. Number five, we ate and drank with him after the resurrection. This speaks to the fact that his resurrection was in bodily form. Number six, we testify that he is the judge of the living and the dead. This speaks to the fact that he is exalted as the judge. And finally, number seven, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. This speaks to the fact that you can be pardoned and cleansed. Amen. Guys, as you reflect on this message that Peter gave, off the cuff, mind you, Notice that it is the same testimony that he gave to Jerusalem. Yeah. 
There's only one gospel for the Jew and the Gentile alike. Amen. The story does not change depending on who you are talking to. There is one gospel for all mankind, and it does not need your abridgment because of social concerns when dealing with Muslims, atheists, Jews, or any other grouping that exists. The book of Acts displays one body, one spirit, one kingdom, and one message that will reach the lost sons of Noah. Every attempt that has ever been made to modify the gospel for improved receptivity in a given audience is actually reinforcing, hear us, a satanic barrier by treating some men differently from other men. Peter's example gives us courage to treat every man exactly the same and present the full real gospel to each one. Amen. That's good. You may also remember that this Holy Spirit-filled meeting between Cornelius' party and Peter's party happened at Caesarea Maritime. Caesarea Maritime was a culturally Roman city within the borders of Israel. This made it an unusual city to be utilized as a missionary hub to the world. But the early church took on a task that then prevailed even though it had been an oppressive Roman stronghold. Caesarea became the center of outreach from this time forward. Let's look at this slide. Caesarea, the center of outreach. Caleb, you should think of this like Oregon or Seattle. Like most coastal communities in New Testament times, Caesarea had a mixed population. When Pilate was procurator of Judea, he lived in the governor's residence at Caesarea. Philip preached in the city in Acts 8 which was also his home in Acts 21. And it was here that Peter was sent to minister to the Roman centurion Cornelius. Herod Agrippa resided in the city and died there. Paul passed through Caesarea several times, making it his port of landing on his return from his second and third missionary journeys. At Caesarea, he made his faithful decision to visit Jerusalem. And to that city, he returned under guard prior to his appearance before Felix. After two years of imprisonment, Paul made his defense before Festus and Agrippa II in Caesarea and sailed from there as a prisoner when sent by Festus to Rome on his own appeal. That's a lot of things happening in Caesarea. The level of activity in Caesarea was prolific and vibrant. Philip even chose the city to raise four daughters and they grew to be known as women who prophesied. This displays the kind of attitude that that believes the gospel is victory over the world. The believers in the first century entered into the stronghold of the enemy and raised their own families and daughters as a catalyst for victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. We want to assure you that, like the spiritual gifts, this too will continue in our own time and among our number for the glory of God. Amen. Amen. So in preparation for our chapter tonight, we want to tell you about another city that will become a base for missionary activities. Yeah. That city is Antioch. And it is the first place that multicultural Jewish and Gentile populations existed as a church outside the borders of Israel. Look at this next slide with us on Antioch. 
Of the 16 cities built by the Seleucid general Seleucus I Nicator, and named for his father Antiochus, Syrian Antioch was the largest and most prosperous. With a population of over 500,000, including a Jewish colony of 70,000, and a thriving economy because of its strategic position at the crossroads of trade routes south to Palestine and Egypt, east to Persia, and west to the Asia Minor Peninsula. Antioch was justly called Antioch the Great, Queen of the East. Josephus ranked it as the third greatest city in the Roman Empire, behind Rome and Alexandria, and you can see that reference there. This free city, capital of the Roman province of Syria, was a melting pot of Western and Eastern cultures, where Greek and Roman traditions mingled with Semitic, Arab, and Persian influences. As you encounter the events at Antioch, it is important for you to understand for you to ignore many of the tradition, traditional theories taught about the structure in the book of Acts. It is common for people to say that Jerusalem fades into the background from this point on, but that is an erroneous and misleading concept. The narrative moves on to record the expansion of the kingdom into new areas, but that is not because the Jerusalem community had faded from prominence. Amen. Is because they are succeeding in their mission. Yes. Jerusalem is the city of Adonai's throne and the center of apostolic government of the church. The events that are recorded are not subtraction or replacement. The record is purely addition. Amen. The church did not lose Jerusalem to gain Antioch. The church spread from Jerusalem and added Antioch. Amen. Both communities thrived for decades and acted as a singular body with one purpose. You will see the church council in Acts 15 convening to solve issues that Antioch and the other communities faced. The book of Acts is displaying the kingdom growing to the ends of the earth through addition, not subtraction. And it is as a single unified body of trust. So tonight as we encounter Acts 11, you will continue to see a pattern of two-fold witness and gain insight into one of the most monumental steps in all of world history. This happens through the body of Christ working in teams that function in holy unity. They're successful in tearing down the satanic barriers that were in place because of man-made taboos. These non-scriptural and self-righteous rules have always done more to hinder the gospel wow. than be a witness of the kingdom. Wow. But when they come down through repentance, the kingdom burst forth in divine glory. Amen. Thanks. We're going to pray now. And as we get into the text, you should be asking yourself what the normative Christian experience of first century believers looked like. Amen. Their example is the original and is what we are seeking to replicate. Amen. So mighty one, we thank you for this room of men and women who love your word. Lord, we're asking that you would help us to understand the original context in greater levels. Lord, and then in addition to that, we might understand the practical application for our own lives in greater levels. Lord, that satanic barriers and walls would be torn down, but through powerful repentance in this house. We commit our time to you in the name of Jesus. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the, the circumcised believers 
criticized him and said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and the birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Mm. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us of how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and your whole household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come down on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he has given us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Well, we have a lot ahead of us, so we're going to hop right in. Brother Lenton, why don't you read the first two verses of chapter 11? The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem... The circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? As we begin our exposition on the text, 
It's important to point out that Jerusalem continues to be presented as the center of authority. For many of you, this is obvious, and for others, it's a fact that is easy to accept. But these chapters have been used by men who don't understand them to further the concept that Jerusalem is under judgment and the faith is now being transferred to the Gentiles. This concept is patently false and is the result of misunderstanding the addition of new peoples and new lands to the kingship of Messiah. The Jewish apostles continued to govern from Jerusalem because it's the city of Adonai's throne. Jerusalem is named 660 times in the Tanakh directly. That doesn't include the alternative names for the city. In the Newer Testament, Jerusalem is named 141 times. And that does not include the alternative names. The significance of this city in every literary work, historical period, political setting, theological discussion, and even eschatological hope could never be overstated. To the original readers, Jerusalem was central to the identity of Israel itself. Let's listen to Psalm 48, 1 through 3, which, by the way, was the scripture to the first century church. It says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion. In the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So Jerusalem will go through discipline, just as God's son Israel goes through discipline. However, Jerusalem is the city that Adonai has chosen on earth for his name to dwell. In this light, it makes perfect sense for theological controversies to be settled in Jerusalem, where God's name dwells. It also explains why the foundational 12 Jewish apostles center their own activities in Jerusalem. Let's move on together to 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. No building or temple could ever actually house Adonai. These things are used as a focal point to illustrate God's dealings with Israel and also with mankind. If a temple is destroyed, as it has been twice, these are teaching tools that illustrate divine rebuke. However, the rebuke does not involve replacement By another people. The correction may involve the addition of other people, but it does not involve the replacement of God's city or God's people. Notice that Adonai promised, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Come on. Let's look at the last verse in the book of Ezekiel. That is Ezekiel 48, (coughs) verse 35. It says, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city, from that time on, shall be, the Lord is there. Which city is there? Jerusalem! Well, there are many statements about the correction of Israel in the Bible. Sometimes, since Jerusalem is the focal point, those corrections paint Jerusalem in a very negative light. However, you should notice that the last line 
of Ezekiel is about Jerusalem becoming known or named as the Lord is there. Wow. Yeah. In every case that Jerusalem is painted in a negative light, the text goes on to illustrate the restoration and perfection of Adonai's city. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Matthew 27, picking up in 52. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Wow. For many Christians, the thought that Israel rejected Messiah and the thought that Jerusalem is the city he was crucified in have led them to negative views of both Israel and Jerusalem. This displays an enormous deficit in their comprehension of the Bible as a whole. Believers who do not grasp the width and depth of biblical promises are not able to understand metaphors used by Paul that are standing on the foundation of redemptive promises for Adonai's people and city. Did you notice something about Matthew 27? What? In the same city and in the same three-day time period that Jesus was killed, many holy people were resurrected and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Jerusalem is called the holy city in the same moment that Jesus was killed and raised. Good word. <clears throat> Moreover, other saints were raised to be a witness in the holy city. So with the holy city in mind, we're going to go to Revelation 11, verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Thanks, we could do this all night. But just notice that throughout the text, Jerusalem continues to be the focal point of Adonai's plan beginning to end. This is true even when other peoples and cities are being included in the reign of Messiah. Jerusalem will have difficult days ahead, but the people in the city will never be forgotten or replaced by Adonai. Amen. In fact, Luke 1, 32-33 prophesies that Jesus will be given the throne of his father David, which was, of course, in the city of David, ah, yeah. Jerusalem. Yeah. <laughs> so let's reread our opening verses and continue in our dissertation together. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Look, new and amazing things have occurred in Caesarea. They challenged the understanding of the believing community. Our temptation nearly 2,000 years after the events is to be critical of the circumcised believers who raised the issue. We're asking you to reject that temptation because it is totally unfounded. There are parties that arise later in the biblical narrative that warrant negativity. They're the ones that reject the decision of the apostles that we're reading about here. And also in Acts 15. The people we're reading about here and in Acts 15 come to all of the same revelation as the apostles. If you place yourself in the illusion of the first time, then you would undoubtedly all have had the same concerns that these men had. For sure. So let's examine their concern and reaction for a minute. They criticized Peter. The word there in Greek is diakrinanto. It, it is the verb form of diakrino. So diakrino 
denotes separation and distinguishment. To distinguish, decide, judge. To separate throughout, completely. To separate oneself, particularly to separate oneself from. So the reaction of the circumcision group is that they wanted to separate from or stand at a distance from Peter because of his controversial actions. Ironically, this is exactly what Peter would have done in relation to the three Gentile visitors and Cornelius. Peter had a vision as well as the voice from heaven that repeated three times to aid him in coming to the right conclusion. These men experienced no vision and they heard no voice from heaven and yet they also come to the right conclusion after hearing the testimony of Peter. You know, for many of us, it is difficult to picture who the group is that is criticizing or standing at a distance from Peter. Several of our translations insert words like faction or group or party into the text that do not actually appear in the manuscripts. They do this to try to aid the reader's understanding. Can we tell you tonight how unfortunate that aiding is? Later groups will arise that are factious and try to form opposition parties to the inclusion of Gentiles without them being circumcised. However, that objection is not raised in this discussion and these men do not form a faction. The text simply says, Ekperitomis, or the circumcision, criticizer stood at a distance from him. In all likelihood, every Jewish believer had serious concerns with the report that Peter entered the home of Gentiles and ate with them. But only a portion of the Jewish believers went so far as to be distant from Peter. This is understandable and reminds us of the reaction that we get within this community, say, if we enter a bar in Moscow. (laughs) Believers who hear about it are immediately faced with hesitancy because it's considered a Christian taboo to hang out in a bar. However, some believers react by placing distance between us and them while other believers refuse to place distance between us and them. Eventually, Adonai brings unity when the testimony of events, the spirit, and the word bear witness to the fruitfulness of the event. Come on. This is the problem with Christian taboos not found in the word of God. You want to know what the problem is? Yeah. They raise satanic walls between believing men like you and I. This church almost split over a Bible study held in a hookah bar in Houston. Yeah. Christians steeped in self-righteous taboos create a distance between themselves and the leadership because of their social concerns. In the end, Adonai dismantled the non-scriptural wall through the witness of the testimony of fruitfulness and the Spirit and the Word. Amen. Amen. The situation in this text is very similar and we should view the circumcision with the same level of mercy that we do faithful brothers in this church who have had difficulty when their non-scriptural taboos are challenged. So let's recap the party with the concern 
and the concern itself on our slide. Eg peritone and diacrinonto. Every Jew probably had a concern about Peter's actions. Peter entered a Gentile home and presumably ate with Gentiles. Only a portion of those Jewish believers went so far as to take an action because of the concern. Mm. Now, the action that a portion of the Jewish believers took was to make a separation between themselves and Peter. This action amounted to criticism of Peter expressed by making a distinction between themselves and him. Now, we think that it is admirable that these believers entered into a discussion with Peter. They examined his testimony, the witness of the Spirit, the fruit of the action, and the Word of God. This resulted in unity rather than division. So perhaps this serves as a model in practical application. Could be. Could be. Possibly. When you feel the need to express distance between yourself and other members of this community, aren't you on similar grounds as these men? Yes. When you feel the need to express your disagreement within a circle of your influence, aren't you practicing the same kind of criticism or diatrino distinction? Yeah. These situations should be driven from the actual written word and not your own pet Christian taboos. These situations should be taken directly to the person you have the concern with so that the testimony, the fruitfulness of the event, and the word of God can be consulted. Anything else will lead to a faction that becomes a hindrance to the kingdom rather than an aid or protection to the work of God. Factions are going to rise within the text of Acts and the Pauline epistles, but this group in our chapter actually handles the situation admirably and avoids becoming a faction that divides the church of God. Let's refresh our memory of 1 Corinthians 11, 19. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Differences among believers should be based on honest interpretation and application of the text itself. Amen. In time, wisdom will be proven right by her actions, and Adonai will guide his community into fruitful practices. However, when a rumor spreads that a pastor was smoking a cigar, and criticism or separation results from this rumor, this is destructive and often leaves out the fact that Ten people got spirit-filled in the same event. (laughs) In cases like that, we want to develop the maturity to go to the Word rather than consult our own list of pet Christian taboos. We want to examine the actual testimony of what happened. We want to look for the witness of the Spirit and the Word as a twofold testimony. There is either fruitfulness in the event or the the event itself lacked fruitfulness. But this is the way that we handle it. Amen. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. So we love Peter's maturity and patience in this verse. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. So remember, Peter had his own objections to the Cornelius event, and he received merciful instruction from heaven three times. This undoubtedly aided him in the approach of addressing the concerns of his brothers. 
since Peter himself had a problem with self-righteous, non-scriptural taboos, he was able to help his brothers overcome them through his own humble testimony. This, too, is a pattern that we would like to see replicated within our community. So Galatians 6, 1 through 5 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. Wow. For each one should carry his own load. Perhaps the best quality in Peter's life is that he often tried first, failed first, and then got it right first. Yes! This allowed him to gently pastor others through the experiences that he had with the Lord. His demeanor seems to be infinitely bold, but also thoroughly humble in all of his dealings. Truly, Peter is an excellent example for all of us in this room right now. Verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. So as we read verses 5 through 8, and you're putting yourself in Peter's shoes in this story, I got a question for you. Would you have been tempted to omit your initial objection? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Would you have jumped straight to the part where you heard the heavenly direction and your obedience produced good fruit? Just leave that out. Like, oh, my reply, no, I'm, I'm leaving that out of the story. Then the men showed up, and I went with them, and it turned out awesome. <laughs> Guys, we've noticed that many believers that are held in high regard often avoid illustrating their own corrections with the Lord. These believers are often focused on the merciful result without allowing you the insight into their actual struggle through the process. Yeah. It actually takes bravery to demonstrate your own obstinance and the way that the Lord dealt with you as a gentle father. When testimonies emphasize the greatness of Adonai in the face of weak and frail men, just like you and I are, then they become powerful. Hallelujah! This is because they display the strength of Adonai overcoming the foolishness of men. We're so thankful that Peter regularly puts his faults on display for our benefit. He is a man whose mistakes are not fatal and whose failures are not final. In every case, the wisdom and strength of Adonai are displayed through Peter's honest accountings of his life through the scripture. We might, no, we definitely all need to more carefully follow his path. Amen. Amen. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. 
do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. How many times? Three. three. Again, let's wrestle with this. Might you have been tempted to admit that it took you three times to begin to understand the Lord's correction of your non-scriptural taboo? Yes. yes. This part of the story may have been difficult for Peter, particularly, since the story of his three famous denials was written into the Gospels. We can't know for sure, but you have to wonder if his eyes wet with, with tears as the words, <coughs> this happened three times, came out of his mouth. Come on. Wow. Perhaps another useful exercise would be to put yourself in the shoes of those hearing him recount this testimony. They knew that Peter had healed the lame, that had raised the dead, and yet, at this point, they stood at a distance from him over a social taboo that they thought Peter had violated. This testimony must have had a powerful impact coming from such a humble man that they loved but had treated poorly. Let's look at Philippians 2, picking up in verse 1. Let's do it. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Wow. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourselves, Amen. not looking to your own interest, yeah. but each of you to the interest of others. Now, we're approaching an event that has shaped world history more than any other event in history. If the door to the Gentiles had not been opened through the Cornelius event, then what would the cultures of most of the Western world look like? <laughs> Europe, the Americas, and countless other countries would be entirely different than they are today. Oh, yeah. It cannot be overstated that this event is among the most monumental steps in human history. Yeah. The thing that none of it would have happened, the thing is that none of it would have happened if selfish ambition and vain conceit was present in this conversation. Oh, come on. Both parties are avoiding a schism by living in the attitude of Christ. Yeah. 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 Peter is not defending himself he is accurately describing his own correction and the witness of the Spirit and the Word. Amen. Amen. The circumcision is not looking to defend their diacrino. They are seeking to understand the workings of Adonai. A sentiment that makes my eyes wet with tears. Yeah, yeah. for sure. This is a beautiful moment. It, it's really going to wet my eyes with tears. <laughs> This is a beautiful moment in the book of Acts because it is a model for how we handle the challenges that are ahead of us in the coming difficult Amen. days. Amen. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. So the very first thing to remember from last week is that hesitation is not the right way to think about what the Spirit told Peter. We're not entirely sure why the NIV uses the word hesitation in the original event with Peter and in Peter's retelling of the event. At least, though, 
They consistently make the same error in their interpretations. The ESV, on the other hand, uses the word hesitation in the original event and then switches to making no distinction in Peter's retelling. Here's a slide so that you can visualize what we're saying. What did the Spirit say to Peter? So the 1984 NIV on the left, Acts 10.20. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them. In 11, in the retelling, the Spirit told me to have no hesitation. Then the ESV on the right here. Rise and go down. Accompany them without hesitation. Then oddly, in the retelling, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. So the NIV consistently gives a translation that is dynamic but misleading. And the ESV is inconsistent and only gives the literal meaning 50% of the time. The reason that we're pointing this out has nothing to do with tearing down our personal favorite translations. It has everything to do with making a connection that is obvious in the Greek through these chapters. Let's look at a slide that will help you make the obvious connection. Diacrino is the issue. In Acts 10.20, Peter is told to get up and go down to accompany men without diacriminos. This means without making a distinction or separation between himself and them. Then in Acts 11.12, Peter goes up to Jerusalem and the circumcision criticized him. That's 11.2, sorry. They diacrinato him. This means that they showed a distinction or separation between themselves and him. Then in Acts 11.12, Peter recounts to the circumcision what the Spirit told him using the word diacrinata. These are all words that have the same root and mean to make a separation. So don't get lost in these various conjugations of the same word. The issue at hand is that the Spirit had to tell Peter not to separate or make a distinction between himself and the Gentiles. Y'all have that? Yeah. Yeah. Then when Peter arrives in Jerusalem, his own Jewish brothers are separating and making a distinction between themselves and Peter. Now, Peter is retelling the story to his brothers and illustrating that the Spirit does not want this kind of separating or making a distinction. It's a very consistent thing that doesn't quite come through in the English language. So this is exactly how non-scriptural taboos work. This is how they work in a large group. This is how they work in supposed inner circles within a large group. And this is how they work with, between you and a singular brother in a group. This is how script, non-scriptural taboos work. They first divide you from men that you thought were different on some point, And then they divide you from men that you thought were like you. Oh, wow. mm. The non-scriptural taboo first separated Jews from Gentiles and then went on to separate Jews from other Jews within the same community. Essentially, this is like saying, I will not associate with Christians who have wine at weddings. It doesn't stop there. You then go on to say, I don't associate with Christians who associate with Christians who have wine at weddings. The way that these satanic barriers get torn down is when a godly man like Peter illustrates his own correction in the matter. Come on. So that other men can learn from his experience. How does it get torn down again? Y'all pay careful attention to this. Satanic barriers get torn down when a godly man like Peter 
illustrates openly, boldly, and transparently his own correction in the matter so that other men can learn from his experience. Amen. Amen. Or you could just be faithless and play it safe so that you don't risk being criticized within the Christian community for breaking taboos or associating with those that do. Of course, the world would continue, but it would remain unimproved. Yeah. And the gospel would not be advanced due to your lack of courage. We have experienced the effects of these non-scriptural taboos in the form of criticizing our use of food and drink, our clothing, our facial hair, our Bible translation of choice, our style of worship, our use or lack of use of head coverings, our vehicles, and the list goes on and on and on. The discussion almost never even involves a scripture on the part of the critic, but it does always involve something their circle deems taboo. The word is the only standard, and the spirit will cause wisdom to be proven right by the fruit that results from the activity. Acts 11 goes a long way in teaching us to develop the maturity to engage with these differences and see where God's approval actually lies. Ironically, the typical concern that is usually expressed is that by not observing these non-scriptural taboos, we are ruining our witness to a given community. You're ruining your witness! How many of you have heard that? Raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you how many of you have said it. Guys, in our experience, a willingness to challenge Christian cultural taboos has only enhanced our witness. Yes. Enhanced Absolutely. our witness among the lost that are in need of salvation. The hard-hearted and self-righteous groups that are inflexible and cowardly in the examination of wow. scriptural efficacy in their positions are usually the only group that is unable to see the witness of the word and the spirit in these situations. Let us all endeavor to show courage. Come on. Yeah. Courage in the yeah. examination of the yeah. scripture. And then only draw a distinction of sinful behavior that is scripturally defined. Amen. 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 Let's reread our verses and regain some momentum here. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. All right. So it's important to realize that Peter was in a team of seven men. Every man in the team was a Jewish, circumcised believer, according to Acts 10.45. This means that Peter's testimony was not without the co-witness of other men. In fact... You could say that the number of men that witnessed the divine hand of God was a perfect number. Yeah. Yeah. This illustrates the importance of teams both for accountability and for the perfect unified witness of the events themselves. Amen. Now also, notice that Peter's specific wording in, the, in, the, in his statement. He says, the man's house. He does not call the man a centurion or a Gentile or an Italian. Now that Peter has the revelation, Cornelius is simply a man, like any other man, yeah. 
All divisions have been dropped. This is truly the proper starting place for a genuine move of God. Genesis records all mankind being made in God's (coughs) image. Genesis 9 lays out a redemptive plan for all mankind. Peter did not enter into some lesser version or subcategory of human beings' house. He entered a man's house. When you are truly operating in the spirit, the walls come down. You stop seeing people as Muslims, Buddhists, Baptists, black, white, homosexual, prostitutes, or addicts, and you start simply seeing them as men in need of the kingdom of God. Now this does not mean that there are no differences among you. It means that differences no longer separate separate you unless they are unscriptural and (laughs) sinful. Amen. The whole point of the witness event is to bring all mankind into union with Adonai through Messiah. Come on. This can only be done by utilizing Adonai's word rather than your preferences to bring about the unity. When men accept the word of Adonai, their sinful behavior ceases... But this must not mean that they are required to accept your preferences. Wait, what was that, Peyton? I just want to make sure I understood it. Okay, I just lied. I want to make sure you understand this. And everybody listening, this is a problem in Christianity. When men accept the word of Adonai, their sinful behavior ceases. But this must not mean that they are required to accept your Preferences. The unity is based on nonconformity with the sinful world. It is not based on conformity with your social preferences that were derived from a non-scriptural worldview. That takes us to verse 13, right? He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Mm. We're going to examine something fun here together. It's called Seven Things That Were Not Directed by Peter. (laughs) So to begin with, Peter did not ask to fall into a trance. He was praying and he was hungry. Peter did not ask to then see a vision. Peter did not ask to be visited by three Gentiles. Peter did not ask to be told, make no distinction. Peter did not ask for an angel to appear to Cornelius. Peter did not ask for the angel to tell Cornelius that he and his whole household would be saved. And seven, Peter did not ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon the entire crowd of Gentiles and enable them to speak in other tongues. That's true. The clear import of this testimony is that every event contained in the testimony was orchestrated by God. And none of it was engineered by Peter. Peter was initially resistant, just like the people he is currently talking to. But he was ultimately obedient, and his hearers will be as well. Amen. In many ways, this all reminds us of a prophecy in Isaiah that Paul comments on in Romans 10. Let's just read it from Isaiah because of the volume of information that we still need to cover tonight. So let's take Isaiah 65.1. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation 
that did not call on my name. I said, here am I. Here am I. Thank you, Father. The sovereignty of Adonai was the determining factor in choosing the people of Israel in the first place. Now the sovereignty of Adonai is the determining factor in choosing men of other nations to be included as co-heirs along with Israel. Each of these groups has the responsibility to respond to the divine calling. But none of them sought out the Lord based on their own righteousness and merit. The gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God is coming to earth and that he is revealing himself to men that can respond and be included in the reign of Adonai on earth. In our previous sessions, we've noted that Adonai has indeed bound all men over to unrighteousness so that he might have mercy upon them all. Amen. Let's reread verse 15 again. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. So this phrase is recorded in Acts 10 and Acts 11. It is a twofold witness that the Jewish population of Jerusalem all received the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues in the same way that the Gentiles at Cornelius' house received the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking yes. in other tongues. Let's look at the statements side by side because this is the normative experience for all believers, Amen. Jew and Gentile. Say normative. Normative. Means it's not strange, it's not weird, doesn't happen to just a few people in a closed room, it's normative. Acts 10, 46-47 says, For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Acts 11.15 As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So we won't take the time to develop a doctrinal argument on the subject of speaking in other tongues. We have done that in many other settings, and many of you have it recorded in your Bible's notes section. We usually refer to that teaching as the compelling historical pattern. For the purposes of this study, we just want to highlight for you the normative experience of believers in the first century. The six ordinary Jewish men traveling with Peter had received the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Or else Peter would not have been able to say, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Come on. The context of the statement is immediately after seeing a whole room full of Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit and speaking in other tongues. Yes. Peter is drawing a one-for-one -one parallel between the experiences of his six Jewish traveling companions and the house full of Gentiles. Both groups spoke in other tongues when the Holy Spirit came upon them. In Acts 11, Peter is speaking to the believing Jerusalem community, and he repeats the statement, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. This indicates that the believing Jerusalem community experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in other tongues in the same way that the house full of Gentiles did. Remember, Peter concluded his sermon in Acts 2 with the words, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. It is our position that every believer in the first century was baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues. Come on. Indeed, the record of the book of Acts will continue to bear this out as we move through the chapters. Additionally, we have repeatedly had this experience personally. Yeah. Even last week with a Baptist pastor. Yeah. yeah. When men embrace the scriptural truth that this gift is for them, yeah. then they receive the gift. Amen. Yeah. The only grouping of believers that have difficulty are those who have been deceived into believing yeah. that it is no longer for today or that the gift is only for a select view. The reason we are not going into that subject more deeply is that it is not Peter's point. Since this was the normative experience for first century believers, right. he actually didn't need to address this controversy that, would, that wouldn't arise for several centuries after that. Peter's actual point is that even Gentiles receive what the Jerusalem community received. Now let's look at scripture the scripture that Peter remembered upon seeing this event. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we love the way the Bible illustrates the experience of Peter in the Spirit and then confirms the experience in the Word of God. Yeah. Yeah. Peter is quoting Acts 1.5, but for the sake of clarity, we want to cover a couple of statements by Jesus that occurred before this one. So John. while we go through these passages, pay attention. They're in an order that they occurred in for a reason, and it will help you. Amen. Yeah, let's take our first one in John 7, picking up in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The followers of Jesus were credited with righteousness by faith in the same way Abraham was. They trusted Adonai and obeyed. Yeah. John's Gospel does indicate that after Jesus was glorified, the empowerment of the Spirit would take on new dimensions. Yeah. He literally said that streams of living water will flow from within them. Yeah. So we're going to progress to John 14, and you'll see that change of dimensions. Beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Oh, there it is. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The presence of the Holy Spirit was with believers that followed Jesus in faith. But John indicated a change in believers' relationship to the Holy Spirit. Namely, he was with them, but would be in them. Both John 7 and John 14 are predictive in nature. It did not happen when Jesus said it. He placed it in the future tense. Yeah. 
And the qualifier was Jesus had to be glorified. Yeah. A death, resurrection, and glorification had to happen. So let's pick up in John 20 after Jesus has been glorified. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing statement. It's hard to misunderstand it. I wonder what they received. Well, it's hard to see them as receiving anything other than the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. After Jesus was glorified, he appeared to his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This represents the change from the Holy Spirit being with them to the Holy Spirit being in them. There are several things that happen as a result of this event. The first one here in John, you can see that they're being treated as Adonai's representatives. They're even being told that if they forgive sins, then they are forgiven. The Gospel of Luke records the same event with an additional detail. Ooh, that's found in Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds mm, yeah. so they could understand the scriptures. Wow. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. When Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit, they began to represent Adonai's forgiveness of sin. They also understood the scriptures in ways that they never had previously. This is the result of the Holy Spirit being in them rather than just with them. This indwelling and regeneration came with an accompanying command. But wait, there's more! We're going to continue in Luke 24. In the next verse, verse 48, we're going to read 49. And if you're not following the progression yet, listen closely to what we're about to say in this scripture in our commentary. You will get it. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. They were told to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed in power from on high in the verses that we just read. They were already representing Adonai on earth and his forgiveness of sins. You saw that in John 20. They were already having their minds opened to understand the scriptures. You saw that from Luke 24 verse 45. They already experienced the change of position with the Holy Spirit from being with them to being in them. You saw that from John 14, verse 15. But, 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 they still needed the baptism in the Spirit. Referred to as being clothed with power from on high. So, let's look at the scripture in Acts 1. That Peter is referring to in his recounting of the events at Cornelius' house. Yeah. Peter is remembering the moment before uh, Yeshua departed in which he he gives them instruction. Acts 1 verse 5 says, 
for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When Peter saw the Gentiles at Cornelius' house speaking in other tongues, he first related it to the experience that he and his six Jewish companions had. He said that the Spirit had come on the Gentiles as he had come on the seven men. Then, in his retelling of the story to the Jerusalem community, Peter related the event to the way that the Holy Spirit had come upon Peter and the Jerusalem community. He said the Holy Spirit came on the Gentiles just as he had come upon us at the beginning. These things show the normative, say normative. Normative. The normative experience of believers in the first century, whether they are Jew or Gentile. The connection goes even deeper than that. Let's read these verses following Peter's quotation of Jesus. Okay, so verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The very scripture that Peter remembers after witnessing the Cornelius event involves a refocusing from the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, which will happen, to the emphasis of bringing the kingdom message as far as the Gentile nations at the ends of the earth. This is amazing because Peter is reliving the redirection of Jesus in the same moment that the Holy Spirit is being given to men of other nations. Moreover, in his retelling of the story, Peter is now the one redirecting his Jewish brothers away from the national concerns of Israel, which will be met, and towards the salvation of other men from other nations. Do your brothers see the levels in that? Do you get that when Peter sees this happening, he remembers to when he had to be redirected away from his national concerns and towards the empowerment of the Spirit to the other nations? Then, while he's seeing that happen, the next cut scene is he standing before more Jewish brothers that also have to be redirected away from their national concerns and towards the nations? Talk about it, a, a beautiful scripture quote. Yeah. It came to him, he said. Yeah. And then I remembered it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These kind of details illustrate that the effectiveness of your witness grows as you grow as a believer. Yeah! yeah. yeah. I want to witness better. Grow more! Yeah. <laughs> Peter's experiences illustrate growth, and he is being used to cause the growth of maturity in the Jerusalem community. Oh, yeah, and... He was used to open the uh, the door of the gospel to all nations. Yeah. The most monumental thing to have ever happened in human history. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly he's fading into the background. Yes, yeah. <laughs> verse 17. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could oppose God? Yeah. Great question. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Peter is clearly illustrated that the Spirit of God and the Word of God broke down his non-scriptural social taboo. He rightly came to the conclusion that his taboos represented opposition to Adonai. Better yet, he led his brothers who held the same non-scriptural social taboo 
into the revelation that he had received himself. Yeah. Y'all starting to smell what we're cooking? Oh, yes. yes. These recorded events show that the word of God and the spirit of God will defeat fleshly divisions. The kingdom of God under Messiah's leadership will never meant to display division or subtraction. It was always meant to display addition. When men value the leading of the spirit and the word of God more than their own preferences, the kingdom itself is purely about addition. Amen. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God. Yeah. Yeah. So then, God has granted even the Gentiles yeah. repentance unto life. Yeah. But we, we should all take note from those that are called the circumcision. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> they raised no further objections. They didn't cross their arms and say, well, that's not how we do it. They saw the agreement of the word in the spirit. They learned from the experience of these seven brothers, and they dropped the issue altogether. If they hadn't, then they would be calling something unclean that Adonai has determined is clean. If they hadn't, they would be opposing Adonai's work. What does this say about you? If you still maintain a self-righteous pet issue above the word or not illustrated in the word. We keep hitting this subject pretty hard. That's Judah's fault. Thank you. No, it's actually because the scriptural record does. Additionally, our pet issues, well, they're based on a lot less than theirs were. Consider this quote from the Talmud. This is the Seder Olam Rabbah 21. After the Torah was given to the Israelites, the Holy Spirit ceased among the nation. And so it was said by Moses in Exodus 33, How will it be known that I have found favor in your eyes? How is it known that God has done his will for him? It says in Exodus 34.10, See, I'm making a new covenant. In that hour, the Holy Spirit ceased to be with the nations. Some of the finest sages in Israel's history actually reinforced the idea that Gentiles could not receive the Holy Spirit. They saw the gift for Israel alone. Their expositions on the subject were full of the word, but drew all of the wrong conclusions. This kind of error is not easy to overcome. The point is that they did overcome it and proving it by having no further objections. Amen. Even when it seemed to go against centuries of teaching and the prevailing social opinions of the day. As our last practical application on this subject, we just want to point out that our Christian social taboos are usually based on a lot less than these men. They are not based on centuries of oppression or the teachings of our greatest heroes. They are usually based on half of a misunderstood scripture, or no scripture at all. The reason that most of them exist is actually the self-righteous attempt to be purified through abstinence rather than through obedience. In any case, you can see from the slide why the Gentiles receiving the same gift as Israel was such a monumental event. These kinds of things can only be arranged by Adonai. 
When men repent, it is a gift from him. Amen. Yeah. The proof the Gentiles repented is that they became sharers in the spirit of holiness and spoke in other tongues. The Jewish believers were already doing that, but showed the repentance by raising no further objections and accepting the testimony of Peter's spiritual experience and confirmation in the word. So let's consider the gift of repentance and the attitude that Peter displayed one last time, and then we're going to move on to Antioch. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Peter's actions in Acts 11 are exemplary. Yes! His attitude, his manner in dealing with opposition, these things allow the best possibility for his detractors to be granted repentance. Moreover, the circumcision began to praise God that their Gentile brothers had been granted repentance even unto life. Let's continue in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So, as we get into the Antioch portion of our chapter, Luke is letting us know that the events were about that the events we are about to encounter were set into motion back back in Acts eight, where you read that know that those who have been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. Yeah. This slide will give us the opportunity to talk to you about the relationship between all these events. So you can see Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, Acts 11. When Stephen was martyred in Acts 7, a persecution broke out against the church in Acts 8. You remember that, right? Yep. That intentional scattering by Adonai actually set into motion all, say all, all all of the events in the center of our slide. The most amazing thing is that the Cornelius event caused a report to go to to Jerusalem and resulted in the text that we just covered today. At the same time, the events in the center of the slide were occurring. Men are traveling to various regions, but the story is going to center on Antioch. While the Cornelius story was occurring, other similar events were occurring concurrently. Those witnessing events mostly centered on the Jewish people, but in Antioch, they involved Gentiles. This means that in Jerusalem, they heard about Cornelius being baptized in the Holy Spirit from Peter, and then the report came in that Gentiles were getting saved in Antioch through the efforts of ordinary believers. This represents two witnesses, a twofold witnesses, that the door to the Gentiles was being opened. Amen. You got two reports coming back to Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. And the blood of Stephen was the seeding of revival 
for people to spread out from Africa to Syria. This is truly remarkable, and it is an inspiration for believers everywhere to practice a little dying every day. Amen? Amen. Amen. Unfortunately, this detail of the twofold report of Gentile salvation is easily missed depending on the translation that you're reading. This is because an unusual word is used to describe Gentiles in Acts 11, verse 20. Here we go. Let's read that verse again. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, Greeks. telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So let's look at the word translated as Greeks in the NIV. Manuscripts and translational differences. This word for Greeks in Acts 11 verse 20 is Hellenistas. At the bottom of that first entry, you see the NKJV, the NRSV, and the ESV. These translations, they put this in the script as the Hellenists. There are variant translations where the word appears as Hellenas, like the KJV, the NIV, the NEV, REV. You see those references. They translate this word as the Greeks or the Gentiles. Look, that got a little muddy. The blue things that are on your screen are manuscripts. The top ones are the earliest and the best. That word is Hellenistas. Some translations listed there say Hellenist. The variant reading earlier, I'm sorry, later, worse manuscripts, probably scribal errors, they say Helen, Greek. Well, that's a huge difference. Yeah. And we're going to discover why it's there and how to resolve it. Yeah. The word for Greeks is not in the earliest and best manuscripts. The word is Hellenistas in the majority of manuscripts. There are some later manuscripts that say Greeks or Gentiles, but they are not compelling. Most scholars consider them a later edition or scribal correction. The most likely reason for this is the uncertainty about what Hellenistas means in this context. So we're going to do that on our next slide. Uncertain meanings and interpretation. The textual problems of this verse are compounded by the diversity of views concerning the meaning of Hellenistas. This noun, which appears to be a new formation from this Greek word, to speak Greek or to practice Greek ways, is found nowhere in previous classical Greek literature or in Hellenistic Jewish literature. And the New Testament occurs only here and in 6.1 and 9.29. So in Acts 6 and in Acts 9, the word refers to Jewish men that speak Greek or have been highly influenced by Greek culture. In Acts 6, the Grecian Jews are believers dealing with the issue of widows within the community. In Acts 9, they are not believers and are in opposition to Saul. In those cases, the only way to know the difference between the two kinds of Hellenistas is by the context of the passage. Now, as we encounter the same word in Acts 11, the question has to be asked what the term Hellenistas refers to, given that a range of meaning has already been demonstrated. It appears three times in the word. The first two times, it is Jews who are culturally Greek. One of the occurrences, they're believers. One of the occurrences, they're not. Do you see there's already a range of meaning in the word? Yeah. Here's one expert's commentary on the issue. Hellenistas, Greek Jews or Gentiles. For a time, these scattering disciples preached to Jews only. But at length, some of them, designated as being from Cyprus and Cyrene, coming to Antioch, preached to, Jesus, 
preach Jesus to Grecians also. It has been in dispute whether these were Hellenists, as in Greek-speaking Jews, or Hellens, a people Grecian by nationality. The textual authorities are conflicting, but the connection here is very decisive in favor of the Grecian people. Preaching to Hellenist Jews would have made no stir at Jerusalem, and no Barnabas would have been sent to see about it. This preaching of the gospel to a large community of heathen, uncircumcised men was a new epoch in the progress of Christianity. The truth is that no lexicon can rightly determine the meaning of Hellenistas. I'm not saying they don't try to, I'm just saying they have no basis for it. This is because the word only appears three times in the Bible, and each time it seems to be referring to a different group of people that had Greek influences in their lives. So what would you do when the manuscripts don't agree and the lexicons have no certain determination? That's a good question. The answer to that question is that you determine the meaning based on the context of the narrative that it's in. Praise God. So let's take a look at another slide. Context determines the intended meaning. Spake unto the Grecians. Or Greek-speaking Jews. Which one is it? Preaching the Lord Jesus. But this cannot be what the historian means. For not only had the gospel been from the first preached to this class of Jews... But these preachers of Cyprus and Cyrene themselves belonged to it. Yeah. And we had just been told that the word had been preached in Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch to Jews only. Can we suppose then that the historian would repeat this statement with reference to the Greek-speaking Jews of Antioch (laughs) as something new and singular? And that he would tell us, besides, that when tidings of the accession of this class to Christ reached Jerusalem, it was deemed so surprising as to demand a special deputation to the spot to examine into it, and that it was to the honor of Barnabas, the deputy dispatched to Antioch, and that he recognized in these converts a real work of divine grace? You see, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown have rightly concluded that in this case, Hellenistas refers to a people that are not Jewish. If the term Hellenistas refers to a class of Greek-speaking Jews, then there would be no need for Barnabas to go establish that it was a real work of grace. What is happening in this portion of the text is a second report of Gentiles coming into the faith. It is a second witness to the Cornelius event, and it is happening through the non-apostolic men outside the borders of wow. Israel. Wow! wow. Come on! That's great. So, question. Why is the term Hellenistas used in the text rather than just saying Gentiles? Well, we've got another slide for you. This is really going to start putting the pieces together. Look at the left side of your screen together with me. But since this Greek word, Hellenistas, is derived from another Greek word, it means strictly one who uses Greek language or customs. Whether the person be a Jew or a Roman or any other non-Greek must be gathered from the context. The word is to be understood in the broad sense of Greek-speaking persons. 
in contrast to the Jews of verse 19. Now, look up there with us. I want to draw your attention to the right side of the screen. These are some boxes that we made here. We made this illustration. There are six colored blocks on the right side of this screen. We're going to read through them from left to right and top to bottom. So, top left, you have Jerusalem-based Hebrew speaker. Super, super Jewish, right? In the top middle, moving right, diaspora returning that favors Greek. Okay, we're getting a little mix in there. Top right, diaspora Jew, that is culturally Greek. Do you see how we're progressing now? Yeah. Look at the bottom left. Gentile who proselytizes but retains Greek ways. Now we're not even a Jew. We're talking about a Gentile. Bottom middle. Gentile who loves Adonai but has not become a proselyte. And bottom right. A man from any nation that is overtly pagan. So, the question for us becomes, who is Greekish? So this is, this is a slide of Greekish gradients. So who is Greekish? Well, it depends on who you ask. To a Jerusalem-based Jew, Hebrew speaker, the other five groups on this slide may be thought to be Greekish. To a diaspora Jew who returned to Jerusalem but still retains Greek ways, the other four groupings to the right may be thought as Greekish. To a diaspora Jew who remains in foreign nations but is a Jew, the other three groupings to the right may be thought as Greekish. To the Gentile who has taken the extraordinary step of cutting off his flesh in circumcision, in identification with the Jewish nation, the other two groups to the right may be thought of as Greekish. And to the Gentile who loves Adonai but has not become a proselyte, then men from the nations that were overtly pagan would be thought as Greekish. In other words, everyone thought that the pagan was a Greek, but it depends on your perspective as to the other groupings. We believe that Luke used this word to describe other Gentiles who were a little like Cornelius. The term Hellenistas probably refers to Gentiles in Antioch that already had an association with Adonai, but were not proselytes. From the time of Alexander the Great, who intentionally imposed Greek culture on most of the nations in the world, Jews within Israel thought of any other nation as Greek. However, the term Hellenistas may refer to the extent to which an individual participates in Greek culture regardless of their ethnic background. So we agree with the interpretation that the NIV landed on. Greeks are in view in the text, but it should be noted that it is an interpretation based on context. The more appropriate thing to do as a translator would have been to leave the term untranslated so that the reader could make his own interpretation as we have done. The most likely reason that there are manuscript differences is that there are that as the term fell out of, uh, out, fell of out of use, scribes made an interpretation for us and just wrote Greeks. Either way, the meaning of the text has become clear, albeit through a little controversy. <laughs> Let's pick up in verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them, 
and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. To the efforts of the scattered believers who came to Antioch and preached to Jews and Greeks were both blessed. These efforts had to be led by the Spirit because there is no recorded apostolic direction right. or heavenly vision <laughs> that directed them. Come on. Right. This may have been even more bold than what Peter did. In many respects, this reminds us of Nehemiah. I'm going to read to you Nehemiah 2, verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. We see the Antioch event as building an addition onto the household of Adonai. It is the first church outside the borders of Israel that has a Jewish and Gentile population worshiping together as one body. Come on. You can imagine that the church in Jerusalem could have had concerns that were mixed with excitement in hearing of this news. Yeah. Remember, these events were happening concurrently with Acts 8, 9, and 10. It is likely that the Jerusalem community just finished hearing about Cornelius when our next verse occurs. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. This is even more monumental than when Peter and John were sent to Samaria to validate Philip's work. No one knows why Barnabas was sent instead of one of the twelve, but it's probably because of the traumatic events that you'll read about in chapter 12. The apostles were most likely unable to go. However, this book is about the actions and teachings of the body of Christ, yes. yeah. and the sending of Barnabas further illustrates our original thesis. When you understand the flow of chapters from 8 to 11, it becomes beautifully evident that the Lord is working to bring the sons of Noah into the tent of Shem. Come on. It is equally profound that Adonai did this through the arrival of two witnessing reports in Jerusalem at relatively the same time. Mm. Peter was in a group of seven that testified about Cornelius, and then a report showed up about Gentiles in Antioch. The Lord loves to establish everything by two or more witnesses. Come on. Let's go to verse 23. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So we would have loved to be able to teach on the nature of grace that can be seen. It was our original intention to do so, but other parts of this text warranted more explanation. You should know that the phrase evidence of the grace of God is indirectly misleading. The original text does not say evidence because grace is its own evidence. Amen. The truth is that grace is not really grace unless it can be seen. Yeah. Grace requires no evidence because real grace is evidence. Amen. Since our time is short, let's just examine that in a single passage in Titus 2.11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. 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 Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself 
a people for his own possession who are zealous yeah. for good works. Amen. Grace that can be seen is discernible in the recipients because they are being empowered to turn from ungodliness. This is the beginning of genuine grace, but it is not the ultimate goal of genuine grace. The aim of real grace is a purified people who are demonstrably zealous Come for on. good. Yeah! What Barnabas saw at Antioch was a people who had turned from ungodliness and were purified so that they became visibly zealous for good works. This is what the NIV calls evidence of grace. But the truth is that it is just grace. Yeah. Yeah. If grace cannot be seen, then it is because real grace is not present. Wow. When Barnabas saw real grace at work in the believers, his encouragement to them was to remain true to the Lord. This is an inspiration as well as a warning to us all. It's an inspiration because genuine grace empowers us to be purified and become zealous for good works. Come on. Yeah. It's a warning because we must remain true to the Lord's work in us or we will drift from the goal of Adonai's grace Ooh. in our lives. Yeah. This was especially powerful coming from Barnabas. He sold his own field. He brought the proceeds to be laid at the apostle to lay it at the apostles' feet in Acts 4. And the next event in Acts 5 was Ananias and Sapphira, who did not remain true to the Lord. Barnabas was a master at spotting genuine grace, and he recognized it in Saul of Tarsus when the rest of the church just wasn't sure. Barnabas told the community at Jerusalem about the genuineness of Paul's transformation in Acts 9.27. And it was Barnabas who caused Paul to be accepted in the fellowship of believers. You might think of Barnabas as a champion of grace. One who was able to identify the working of Adonai and others before the rest of the crowd. He seems especially gifted to recognize the seeds of grace and cultivate them into maturity in others. Verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Oh, I said it couldn't get better. So we all know that Barnabas goes on to be identified as an apostle, but it is worth noting that his actions were apostolic long before that title appeared in his life. Yeah. yeah. Luke also uses a nearly identical phrase to describe Barnabas as he did when describing the first believer to give his life for the gospel. That is Stephen. Yeah. Acts 6.5 calls Stephen a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And here our text calls Barnabas full of the Holy Spirit and faith. How interesting is it that those who achieve the most in the kingdom are not said to be full of talents, charisma, preaching skills, resources, or all those kind of things. The picture being illustrated throughout the book of Acts is that those who are full of trusting Adonai and relying on his spirit of holiness are the ones who accomplish the most for the kingdom. Amen. Amen. The good news is that every one of you and us can be a part of us. Yeah. In our minds, he is the ideal example for men of God. Amen. Let us become champions of grace in other people's lives. And let us help them cultivate their zealous good works 
for Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Let's take 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Mm -hmm. So you know we spent a great deal of our evening talking about manuscript differences and the difficulty in determining the meaning of Hellenistas. For some of you, that was vitally important, and for others, it probably fell flat. Many in this room weren't aware of the issue and might not understand the importance of getting the passage right. However, if you got nothing else from the discussion, you should always remember that the larger biblical context will always help you interpret difficult passages. People who get stuck in the narrow view of a handful of verses tend to develop peculiar uh, doctrines, while those that can see the broad view of the entire canon tend to have much more balance in their exegesis. Now we have a question for you. Why do you think that out of all the people in the body of Christ, Barnabas went to look for Saul? Let me remind you in Acts 9.15, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument oh, yeah. to carry my name before the oh, Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Barnabas had seen genuine grace in Antioch, and Barnabas had been among the first to identify genuine grace in Saul. When Barnabas got to Antioch and realized that Adonai was opening the door to the Gentiles, he went to look for Saul, who had been chosen as the Lord's instrument to carry the name before the Gentiles. Everything in the context of Acts 8, 9, 10, and now 11 points to the proper interpretation of Hellenistas as Gentiles who had some existing relationship to Adonai. The scripture is properly interpreted when the entire scripture is consulted. This is a good reminder for all of us in our studies. It is our hope that you will learn to practice the broad filter of the word in narrow passages. We teach this in ministry training one and two, but it takes a lifetime of practice to actually become proficient in it. Let's read verse 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The first thing that you should notice about this verse is that Barnabas and Saul are working within the community at Antioch for an entire year. This is significant because it speaks to the tremendous importance of the community that had been added to the kingdom. The second thing that you should be aware of is that this is the origin of the name Christian. This represents one of the first subtle deviations from the Hebraic nature of our faith that was identified in the Tanakh. I want you to check out this slide for a second. Christians or followers of the way? This word Christianos, or Christianu, is a name given to the disciples or the followers of Christ, first adopted at Antioch. It does not occur in the New Testament as a name commonly used by Christians themselves. You can see only three occurrences there. The believers first became known as Christians as an appellation of ridicule. In all of the Pauline letters, the word Christian does not appear even once. There are only two occurrences of pagans calling believers Christians in the book of Acts. 
And there is only one other occurrence in the first letter that Peter wrote. The context of Peter's letter suggests that people were suffering as Christians. Right. Our point is not to demean the term as it is used today, but to enlighten you as to the origin of the term. The word Christian was most likely used by outsiders as an appellation of ridicule. In some sense, it's kind of admirable that we've taken the term and turned it into a compliment. But in another sense, it represents a more Greek designation for the church than the church actually used for itself. This is the beginning of a satanic attempt to redefine the followers of the way given to Israel as something that has no connection to Jews, Jerusalem, or the promises given to Israel. The Bible never represents our faith as a separate religion from Judaism. Amen. If anything, our faith should be seen as a completion of true Judaism. However, the drift in terminology became cemented in the minds of people during the 3rd and 4th centuries. This led Christians and Jews to see themselves as two irreconcilable religions that were distinct. Even the term conversion represents transition from one religion to another and should only be rightly applied to a pagan. The early testimony of our faith is about the transformation of Jews into reliance on Adonai's Messiah. The Jews never stopped being Jews. They were just men who followed the way outlined in the Tanakh that Adonai had prescribed in advance within Judaism. This is a deep subject that few handle very well. And our time is short. Think on these things and we will discuss them in more detail during our Acts 15 study. You guys remember the next slide that's about to be popped up here? The way number seven? Yeah. Acts 24, 14. This is a review to remind you how the Bible defines our faith. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. We don't have the time to review the seven times that believers identified themselves as followers of the way as outlined in Isaiah 35. But this seventh one is explicit. Believers in the first century saw themselves as remaining loyal to the principles of true Judaism, as outlined in the promises of the Tanakh. The Bible is Israel-centric and Israel-dependent. New peoples were added as co-heirs of the promises to Israel, but nobody was subtracted, and the faith should never have been divided. Jews who reject Messiah are not practicing true Judaism, but they are still the members of the chosen nation. Those who accepted Messiah self-identified as followers of the way that the God of Israel revealed to mankind through Israel. This is the correction of Judaism and is not the conversion to a new religion. Amen. Wow. Wow. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Well, there are two amazing things that are happening in these verses. The first is that we have the appearance of prophets within the community. Hallelujah! The second is that we have one of our first timestamps 
in the text that informs us of when these events are happening. Yeah. That deserves another hallelujah. hallelujah. So, let's look at this slide about the appearance of prophets. Prophets are among the believer. Prophets among the believers are mentioned here and at the following New Testament references. In the yellow highlighted part, non-Messianic Jews maintain that maintain then and maintain still that prophecy ceased in Israel soon after the return from Babylon. For example, 1 Maccabees 9.27 says, So there was a terrible distress in Israel. There had not been anything like it since the time prophets stopped appearing among them. But according to the New Testament, prophecy recommenced with Johannan the Immerser. <coughs> the appearance of John the Immerser announcing the Messiah of Israel was an unmistakable acknowledgement that Adonai was calling his nation into the reign of Messiah and announcing how the kingdom would come to be possessed by Israel. Moreover, the presence of Jewish prophets within the body of Christ coming from Jerusalem to Antioch is further evidence that the followers of the way were walking in true Judaism as outlined in the Tanakh. The prophecy of Agabus passes the Deuteronomy 13 test that we spend so much time explaining to you back in Acts chapter 4 and 5. Not only does the sign which Agabus predicted come about, but he also is also a member of the community that advocates the way in which Adonai taught Israel to walk. These kinds of events certainly had an impact on the Jewish men that heard about them in Israel. Adonai has always been faithful to his people, and he never leaves them without a voice calling them to obedience that flows from faith. Hallelujah. Yeah. Now let's look at the approximate time frame that the prophecy was fulfilled <laughs> in our next slide, the famine of Claudius. In the time of Claudius, Claudius was emperor of Rome from A.D. 41 through 54. The famine may have begun in A.D. 40, but reached its pinnacle in A.D. 44 through 48, as reported by the first century Jewish historian Josephus. So we don't know the date that Agabus made the prophecy, but we do know that it was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius, which was between 41 and 54. The famine reached its pinnacle between 44 and 48, according to Josephus. This means that Agabus made the prophecy before that time period. The events that we have just read about occurred in the late 30s or early 40s. This would mean that we are something like a decade past the ascension of Jesus, when the door was opened Ooh. to the Gentiles through the twofold witness of Peter's experience with Cornelius. Wow and Barnabas' validation of the grace poured out on the Antioch community. Yeah. When you think about it, the believing community made remarkable progress yeah. in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. This has caused us personally to cry out for greater works of grace in our own lives yeah. so that we might advance the kingdom with the kind of pace that these early believers did. Yeah. All right, let's, let's finish our text tonight. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by, by Barnabas and Saul. There's so many beautiful things that could be said about these verses. It was just a short time ago that the hand of Saul was trying to destroy the church. And the believing community of Judea 
is now being benefited by gifts at the hand of Saul and Barnabas. Come on. There are many parallels that we would love to draw for you regarding the reign of Solomon. They feature the nations of the world bringing gifts back into Jerusalem because of the greatness of the king of Israel. We could do all of those things, but as you can see, time's not going to allow us to. Instead, let's focus on the work of grace in the mixed population of Jews and Gentiles at Antioch. They not only turned from ungodliness, but they demonstrated the grace in their lives by being zealous for good works. They decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. They did this while they were also under the threat of famine because the prophecy was about the entire biblical world. This is revelatory to us as a community of Gentile believers. In fact, Paul would later write about this very concept in the book of Romans. It's likely that he's drawing on the experience that he had with Barnabas as Barnabas included Paul in his monumental step at Antioch. As you stand, we're going to read Romans 15, 25 through 27. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. This is Paul speaking. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. When Paul wrote these words, it was concerning another time of need. But he likely developed the concept from having participated in the work at Antioch. The work of grace was so profound among the Gentile believers in Antioch that it showed up in their zealousness to provide for the children of Israel, since the Gentiles themselves had shared in the blessings of Israel. As we hand this meeting over to the pastors, we want to encourage you to move beyond the starting point of grace, which is to turn from ungodliness and to move into the goal of grace, which is zealousness for good works. Can you put up uh, Titus 2, verse 14? What an incredible night tonight. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. To have the twofold witness of what Peter has not only experienced with Cornelius, but his telling of this story to Jerusalem, to the believers there. How do we learn something about how you should respond when you're telling a testimony of actually what went on? Yep. The testimony is of God's grace in you to allow you to be purified and like verse 14 of Titus 2 says who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness to purify for himself a people that are his very own the twofold witness of what Peter saw experienced with Cornelius along with the brothers there sharing that and somebody say and and what Barnabas was able to see as a powerful working of God's grace in Saul's life and in the lives that are there in Antioch. To purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That working of grace is aimed at not only the purification, teaching us to say no to ungodliness, but it is aimed at people 
who are have the evidence, because grace in itself is the evidence that we are eager to do what is good. Amen. God is raising you up. He's brought you here that you might have the work of grace in your life, and it will be seen as a testimony as you are eager to do what is good, to be zealous, to be passionate about what God has done in you, and rightly transmitting that to the world around you. Amen. Amen. Are you guys eager to do what is good? Yes! yes. <laughs> Look, there's two, two examples that stood out to me of what we're going to strive to be. That is to be like Peter, who saw the evidence of God's grace in his own life and transparently broke down satanic barriers. Secondly, is to be like the uncircumcised group that he encountered and be men who love God's word more than your own preferences. Oh, come on, yeah. 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 By having that as a starting point, good works then be includes displaying the grace of God that breaks down satanic barriers for other people. Amen. And liberates them into the freedom that Christ set them free for in the first place. So look, we're going to stretch our hands forward. Forward meeting towards these three men up here that are going to journey to Romania tomorrow. They're going to go bring the good news of God's grace and demonstrate good works with zeal. Here at home, we're going to commit ourselves to doing good works zealously here as well. And we're going to make sure that we continue to operate in one spirit, one body, one kingdom that is preaching one message. Hallelujah. So stretch your hands full. Mighty God, we thank you for the opportunity to carry with us the good news about you, your gospel, your kingdom that sets men free. Lord, we pray for these three men that as they journey, Lord, let your words come to life in greater fashion. Let it be the word that will provide strength for the weary. It will liberate captives. Lord, it will bring about freedom of your kingdom being displayed here on earth. Set their feet exactly where you destined for them to be. And Lord, let your spirit guide them and fill them and empower them as you lead them to others who need the truth that you have stored up inside of them. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the empowerment of your spirit and the substance of your word inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.